Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. In 2010, we've warned that Julian Assange would face prosecution and extradition to the United States for his publishing activities with WikiLeaks. Unfortunately, today, we've been proven right. Mr Assange was arrested this morning at about 10 o'clock at the Ecuadorian Embassy after the ambassador formally notified him that his asylum would be revoked, and he was arrested by British police. We've today received a warrant and a provisional extradition request from the United States alleging that he has committed conspired with Chelsea Manning in relation to the materials that were published by WikiLeaks in 2010. This sets a dangerous precedent for all media organisations and journalists in Europe and elsewhere around the world. This precedent means that any journalist can be extradited for prosecution in the United States for having published truthful information about the United States. I've just been with Mr Assange in the police cells. He wants to thank all of his supporters for their ongoing support. And he said, I told you so. Well, the only thing to add to this is the fact that uh, this is a dark day for, for journalism. As, as Jennifer said, this sets a, a precedent. Uh, we don't want uh, this to go forward. This has to, has to uh, be uh, averted. The UK government needs to make a full assurance that a journalist will never be extradited to the United States for publishing activity. This pertains to publishing work nine years ago. Publishing of documents, of videos, of the killing of innocent civilians, exposure of war crimes. This is journalism. It's called conspiracy. It's conspiracy to commit journalism. So this has to end and we urge everybody to support Julian Assange in, to, in fighting this extradition. Thank you. Oh, is that what what legal avenues are available to you to prevent his extradition? We will be uh, contesting and fighting extradition. We've requested that he now sit, gets medical treatment. He's been refused medical treatment for the past seven and a half years, since seven years since being inside the embassy. We will be fighting extradition and he'll be brought before the court again within the next month. We're not going to be taking any more questions today. Thank you very much. You are asking about the, the elements in the, the extradition request. It is quite obvious that uh, the US authorities have picked uh, just one element of what they have been working on for a long time, including the Espionage Act. Uh, Acts that uh, are have uh, decades in prison, there is no assurance that there will not be additional charges when he is on U.S. soil. And I think and I believe that this was an angle in the approach to increase the, the likelihood of him being extradited. That is obvious. Thank you. The U.S. government, uh, in terms of its attack on WikiLeaks, uh, has tried to construct a theory which, if permitted, uh, will be the end of national security journalism, uh, not just in the United States, but also about the United States. That. Um, claim is that uh, journalists can't solicit information from sources. And to solicit information uh, is to 
be involved in a conspiracy. An accomplice to the conspiracy. Yeah, and the, and the United States in terms of the charge types uh, that it's trying to uh, uh, charge me with. Uh, those include conspiracy and conspiracy to commit espionage. Uh, this is rubbish. Uh, we, we cannot tolerate this at the political level or the media level. If we do tolerate it, then uh, that standard will be erected. Now, what happens in practice? How does traditional investigative journalism work? Uh, will you hear uh, a rumour about some event occurring? Let's say it's a, an assassination squad assassinating people. You hear a rumour that there have, might have been an event, and you go and speak to your sources, or perhaps one approaches you and say, I heard that this happened. And then you say, um, well, that's good, uh, but we need to be able to prove it. Uh, so do you have information that can prove it? Uh, and then they say, well, I think I might have some report uh, on the incident. Uh, and then you say, well, that's, that's good. Um, can we have that report? Can we see that report? And that's the way journalism has always been done. Uh, now, the US DOJ, that's the smoking gun. That's the smoking gun. That's, if you see the Edward Snowden case, without that, without those documents, you don't get anywhere. If you've got that, uh, then they're undeniable if they're official documents. So today we're here talking with Peter Stern, who is a freelance journalist. He has been in the past a senior reporter at Freedom of the Press. He was the person that launched the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which um, covers violence and uh, against journalism, chilling facts against freedom of the press and things of this nature. Um, he has also written for Politico magazine and was 30 under 30 with Forbes in what year? 2018. 2018. There we go. So um, interestingly enough, when I booked Peter to be on the show last week, we were um, scheduled to discuss uh, issues with freedom of the press and First Amendment rights. And today, lo and behold, uh, we woke up to find that Julian Assange has been arrested in London. So it seemed like really good timing um, to discuss this issue. So I threw away my first eight questions and revamped, um, <laughs> revamped them so we could discuss Assange and what's going on this morning. So as, as things have unfolded, um, let's go through the charges. So the U.S. government um, accidentally exposed over the summer of 2018 that the Department of Justice had secretly filed charges. It was a sealed indictment. And that sealed indictment has now been unsealed um, this morning. And they're going after Assange for a conspiracy hacking, not publishing sort of an attack um, associated with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm glad that you're not going after him for publishing classified information and charging him under the Espionage Act. That right. would set a very dangerous precedent right. that would have allowed the Trump administration to go after journalists for publishing any sort of leaked information that they don't like. But I'm not really happy with the indictment that uh, was unsealed today because they are accusing Assange of conspiring mm -hmm. with Chelsea Manning, right. uh, the former uh, U.S. Army intelligence analyst who leaked all of the classified information about, you know, 
the Iraq war logs, the Afghanistan war logs, the mm-hmm. State Department diplomatic cables, and uh, Guantanamo Bay detainee records back in 2010. Uh, she leaked all of those to Assange and WikiLeaks, and they published it in uh, 2010 and 2011. Right. And this indictment accuses Assange of conspiring with Chelsea to violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Essentially, they're saying that Assange encouraged Manning to leak this information and to access these documents that she was not authorized to access and then leak them to hand WikiLeaks so they could post them. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, he allegedly uh, agreed to help her crack a hashed password right. uh, to a user account so that she could log into that user account and download these documents so that it couldn't be traced back to her. So that's sort of the hacking charge. But Assange is not being charged with hacking. He's being charged with conspiracy to aid the hack. And what's concerning is that CFAA, the Computer Fraud Abuse Act, is a very broad kind of vague law that basically just criminalizes the unauthorized access of a computer system. And if they're saying that Assange is guilty of a conspiracy because he helped his source break into a computer system, given the way that they define breaking into a computer system, it doesn't have to be you know, decrypting a, an encrypted password. It can just be like guessing someone's password, you know, figuring out a way in. That means that a lot of what journalists encourage their sources to do, that kind of back and forth, that cultivating sources, that talking about, you know, what kind of documents you think they should leak or encouraging them to obtain documents they're not authorized to get and then leak them could be considered potentially violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So even though Assange was not charged with publishing classified information, which would have set a bad precedent, I'm concerned that this charge, this conspiracy to violate the CFAA, could also set a very chilling precedent for journalists. If, if the Espionage Act would criminalize the publication of information. I think that this charge, this conspiracy charge, has the potential to criminalize the other side of journalism, the reporting process, not the publication, but the gathering of the information. Indeed. Um, You know, and I think it's really important to point out that these were charges that stem back to 2010. And at that particular time, Obama chose to walk away from um, prosecution on these charges because he thought it would curtail freedom of the press. So here we are all these years later and the Trump administration is now um, is now deciding to prosecute on these charges. And I think it's interesting to discuss that a lot of the major Trump supporters like Paul Watson and Cassandra Fairbanks, Fairbanks who have been supporting Trump and his authoritarian garbage the last two years, um, are now coming out and, cr- and crying foul on this. They're not happy that Trump's doing this. But I would argue that that requires uh, a certain level of cognitive dissonance, 
since this to me seems like the inevitable outcome of, of who Trump is and what Trump believes. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, Trump is someone who wants to go after leakers. You know, he, he valued WikiLeaks during the 2016 campaign when it was publishing information that he found advantageous. But he's not someone who has any principled position on the leaking of information. You just look at the way that he goes after journalists who leak information, you know, true information about what the government is doing that he doesn't like. He calls them fake news, and he encourages the Department of Justice to put them in jail. So I'm not at all surprised that uh, the Trump administration would go after Assange so aggressively. You know, the Obama administration certainly went after journalist sources very aggressively. You know, Chelsea Manning leaked all those documents in 2010, and she was court-martialed. Uh, she was convicted of violating the Espionage Act and related statutes, and she was jailed for many years. Um, Obama did eventually commute her sentence when, uh, you know, right toward the end of his presidency, but the Obama administration went after journalist sources. What they didn't do was they didn't go after the journalists themselves because that was the line they wouldn't cross. Now, I think it's been apparent for a long time that Trump does not see that as a line not to cross. If anything, he wants to go after journalists who write mean things about him or publish information that is unflattering to him. So, I'm not, again, I'm not at all surprised that uh, the Trump Justice Department would go after Assange. I mean, I, I guess it would be even more likely if Assange had published something negative about Trump. But as long as he's not publishing information that is advantageous to Trump, I think that Trump doesn't care. And the Department of Justice, just because it's the way it is, uh, wants to prosecute crimes that involve leaking classified information. And I think they held off for a while, in part because Assange was granted uh, asylum by Ecuador and was safe in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. But now that he lost the asylum and is currently in British custody, you know, now they are ready to try to get him extradited and try to make him, you know, uh, face these charges in the U.S. You know, and on the flip side, I've also seen some of the centrist um, Democratic Party establishment sort of cheering it on as well, but for different reasons. They're cheering it on because they are seeing this as some sort of vindication for Hillary losing the election in 2016, which absolutely makes no sense as far as I'm concerned. Again, these charges date back to 2010, not 2016. And also, it seems to me that if their argument they're making is that that Assange was in cahoots with Trump, and if that was at tr- if that was true at base, why would Trump now turn around and prosecute Assange? Well, you have to sort of go down the rabbit hole of he's trying to clean up his tracks, you know, which I'm not sure that I buy into. I mean, there is, you know, depending on how conspiratorial you want to get, you know, you can say that. Trump wants to get Assange back in the U.S., wants to sort of cut some kind of deal so he's not going to talk about how he colluded with the Trump campaign and with Russia to throw the election to Trump. 
Um, you know, that's possible. Uh, but I agree with you that what Trump is doing, you know, in going after Assange probably indicates that uh, they were not necessarily, you know, working together to uh, to vote the election. And I also think that, you know, the the more salient point is that, as you said, these charges date from 2010, not 2015. So even if you believe that Assange was working with Russian intelligence and with the Trump campaign to hurt Hillary Clinton, that's not what these charges are about. You know, before this... uh, indictment was unsealed, a lot of people were speculating that, you know, they knew that uh, the Justice Department had charged Assange with something and wanted to extradite him, but we didn't know exactly what the charges were, and there was a lot of speculation. You know, mm-hmm. was he going to be charged with, you know, working as a foreign agent with the Russians as part of the Mueller investigation, you know, that he had colluded with Trump and whatnot? And so, like, that was... I guess fair speculation at the time, right. but it didn't turn out to be the case. Yeah. Like once this indictment was unsealed and it pertained to 2010, I don't know why people are <laughs> celebrating that Assange is in jail and has been indicted if, you know, they think he was a Russian agent in 2016. Like, do you think he was a Russian agent in 2010? <laughs> he was playing the long game. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I, I did see one tweet that I thought was amazing. Uh, you know, the person had said, oh, it's good that Assange is in jail because he, you know, conspired with the Russians in 2016 to hurt Clinton's campaign. And, you know, it was pointed out. As I think many people, I think you as well yeah. on Twitter, have been pointing out to these people that well, these charges are from 2010, not 2016, and uh, the response, and I mean, this was just a great galaxy brain take, was well, if he had been jailed in 2010, then he wouldn't have been able to work with the Russians in 2016 <laughs> to prevent Clinton from getting elected. And I mean, you know, it's a take. Wow. It's a it's take. Hard to the logic, but I, you know, I don't think we should block people up. No. Uh, because they might do something bad in five years. <laughs> five years later, exactly. So. It's crazy. But, you know, I think the bigger the bigger issue for me is that these folks seem, seem to not understand that this is about the integrity of our system. This isn't team sports. We should place above all else the integrity of our system. And part of that is making sure that freedom of the press isn't curtailed in any fashion. And this is going to have a chilling effect on whether or not journalists are willing to protect sources, I think, and whether or not they're willing to um, touch certain sources or or, um, anything related to government security. And oftentimes democracy dies in the dark. And I don't see how, you know, look, if truth is uncovered, we should be thankful for having that truth and corruption exposed, even if we find it displeasing, because at least we know what we're dealing with and we can do something to to correct the situation. Whereas if we don't know what the problems are, we just um, 
veer ever so closer to an authoritarian government. And I think we've been on this trajectory for uh, well over a decade now. Um, so speaking of which, let me ask you this, Peter. I know that Assange has not been charged with Espionage Act charges at all, but I sort of am not convinced at this particular point that that might not happen. Um, what do you think? What do you mean? Well, I think that they could add charges of Espionage Act at some point if they extradite uh, Assange um, to the United States. I mean, do you think that that's a potential thing or do you think that's just not going to happen? I mean, I think there are highly technical limitations okay. on adding charges Is as there, part okay. of the extradition process. I see. Um, okay. Countries do not like it when you you know, say that you have charged someone with something uh, in order to get them extradited. And then when they get there, then you load on charges that the country (laughs) may not have extradited them if they had known that. I do think that investigations are continuing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's possible that, you know, as a result of the investigations into, you know, what happened with the 2016 election, Mm -hmm. as those are continuing in different uh you know, divisions of the Department of Justice that the Mueller report has concluded, uh, it's possible that uh, Assange or WikiLeaks could be charged later um, based on new evidence that comes out. But in general, I would say that it seems like the Department of Justice has charged Assange with this one somewhat weak charge, yeah. uh, this conspiracy to violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right. because that yeah. is all that they have on him mm, okay. right now. Fair and, point. you know, they they have something of a mandate, you know, they've been investigating him for a while, they felt like they had to nail him, mm-hmm. and, you know, thankfully, they didn't want to, you know, have a nuclear option of saying, okay, we're going to make publishing classified information illegal right. and prosecute him for that. But so they needed to find something else, and, and this is what they found. So I don't necessarily expect that more charges will follow. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, it did seem like it was carefully carefully crafted to avoid the publishing aspect of the leaks. So. Right, but, but as you said, it, it is still... Uh, could have strong effects on on journalists because I think that there is the possibility that if Assange were convicted uh, of a conspiracy to violate the CSAA because of this, the government could use this same theory to go after other investigative reporters who have not agreed to, you know, crack passwords for their sources but have encouraged them to access documents that they were not authorized to access and then leak them. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that we saw uh, last year with the arrest of the Treasury financial crimes right. investigator yeah. who was leaking those documents to BuzzFeed. 
A senior U.S. Treasury official allegedly leaked confidential documents about a number of Russia probe targets, including Paul Manafort. Officials from the FBI and the Department of Justice announced Wednesday they had arrested Natalie Mayflower Sowers Edwards, a senior advisor at the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. She faces charges of illegally disclosing suspicious activity reports to an unnamed reporter at BuzzFeed News. The reports contained information about Manafort, as well as his former business partner Rick Gates and alleged Russian spy Maria Butina. All three of them have faced charges from special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has said leaks undermine the government's ability to protect the country and that his department has tripled the number of investigations into leaking. Edwards faces a maximum of 10 years in prison if found guilty. And as part of her indictment, mm-hmm. the government included text messages or encrypted uh, instant messages between her and a BuzzFeed reporter. Right. Where, you know, the reporter was like, hey, do you see any documents on, you know, these associates, you know, business associates of Paul Manafort? Right. And she was like, okay, let me look. You know, I don't see anything. And he's like, well, you know, have you tried, you know, looking for this shell company? And it's like... Is that directing a channel? Is that directing a source, you know, what they should feel, what they should leak to access documents that they're not authorized to access? Like that, I I do think that you could say, you know, as an ethical matter, journals should not do that. They need to be just receptacles. Like they need to just receive documents. They should not be directing sources. Mm -hmm. But... As a legal matter, you know, I think it's very concerning if you're going to criminalize that, because I think that is the kind of back and forth and source cultivation that is very typical of journalism, especially investigative journalism. And the fact that it seems like if you are relying on the fact that these documents and these records are stored in computers to say that accessing them is a crime because you are hacking the computer by accessing it when you shouldn't, it seems like you're not so much criminalizing the act of you know, accessing the documents as you are criminalizing it because it's a computer. So it's like in the old days, if you ask someone to hand you documents, would that not be a crime if it wasn't a computer? But now if you do the same thing and you ask someone to access it on a computer and give it to you, then it is a crime. Then you're not saying that, you know, soliciting documents is a crime, just encouraging someone to access the documents on a computer that they're not authorized to access is a crime. So I think there's a way that these Computer Fraud Abuse Act charges could be used to criminalize what is more or less normal interactions between journalists and sources. You know, I agree, Peter. And I think that, I think it's a really important point you make as far as, well, have you looked under this, that, or the other? Because I know I've done this. If you are looking at a certain target and you know that particular target is, you're looking for some quid pro quo or some, you know, something of this nature, and they have 15 LLCs, or it's a lobbyist that's worked, um, you know, with with three different lobby firms and they have separate LLCs and subsidiaries, but the the person might not know that and they might not know which names to look for. So I'm not, 
I'm not entirely convinced that that's necessarily a bad thing to do if you're trying to sort of dig for a certain uh, amount of information and this person's willing to help in that effort. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it is genuinely, uh, certainly as an ethical matter and, and to an extent as a legal matter as well, mm-hmm. you know, a, a matter of debate. Yeah. Well, no, how kind of active should you be? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly if someone has seen documents showing that these LLCs are corrupt and are all tied to one another, yeah. and they kind of go on their own and, you know, assemble the documents and get the evidence and then, you know, give it to you. And they say, hey, I know, you know, I have all this evidence showing they're corrupt. You know, do you want it? And you say, sure, I give it to me. And then, boom, you have it on your platter. Like, that is probably legal. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, if someone tells you, hey, I think there are, you know, documents showing corruption uh, in this company's computer server, and you're like, okay, great, and then you hack into their server and steal the documents, like, that is probably not illegal. Right, and right. so there's a lot of stuff in between. Yeah. You know, if someone were to give you their username and password so that you could go into the database mm-hmm. and select, you know, search for the documents and select the ones that you think are most relevant, Right. And then download those, you know, that mm-hmm. would probably be uh, a chargeable offense. I would think and so. And it probably should be. Like, at yeah. that point, you know, you yeah. are kind of stealing the documents. <laughs> yeah. But then you get to, well, what about when you are telling people which to do documents? The same. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a gray area. Yeah, it and is. That is what I think is concerning, is that there's not a consensus among journalists and among investigative journalists about mm-hmm. where the line is right. and what kind of communications you can have with sources. I think it depends on the context, it depends mm-hmm. on the situation, mm-hmm. and that means that there's the potential, if you're going to, you know, say that anything that could potentially violate the CFAA is now going to be charged as part of a criminal conspiracy to criminalize a lot of investigative journalism and end up indicting a lot of journalists, which I think the Trump administration would be happy to do. They don't like journalists. No, they don't. Fake news. That's why I mean, they incite their sources. That's right. That's absolutely true. I mean, you know, Trump thinks anything that has the audacity to criticize him or anybody in his administration is fake news. So, I mean, that's just his bar. It's very low. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, again, the <sighs> whatever you think of the Assange uh, indictment, whatever you think of Assange's behavior in 2016, and even whatever you think of what he did in 2010, you know, if you think he went too far by agreeing to try to crack the password, I think that you need to look very carefully and very seriously at what kind of precedent this could set and how the Trump administration would use it. Because I can definitely imagine uh, the Trump administration using this precedent to go after a journalist who was talking with ice whistlers 
and they were able to, you know, find secret documents showing ICE surveilling journalists and activists who are re-implementing a family separation, denying asylum to people, even though they were entitled to it. And, you know, if you're like an ICE official, you're not entitled to see those documents. You're not authorized to see them, but you know how to get to the documents and you get them and give them to a reporter. Like, that's the kind of thing that we want reporters to be able to legally solicit and publish because it's in the public interest. And that's the bottom line. It's in the public interest. Um, There's another aspect of this I wanted to talk about, and that is this... um, the idea that the that the IMF has extended $4.2 billion worth of financing to Ecuador recently, I think it was announced on Monday, and that there might be some sort of quid pro quo between the IMF, uh, which would entail, you know, Great Britain, United States, et cetera, and Ecuador, and, and the reason they gave um, asylum up on Assange. Do you think that that is a feasible explanation or is that sort of conspiracy theory? I mean, I don't necessarily think it's just a coincidence. You know, I I think that Ecuador has not been happy with Assange for a while. You know, the the current president of Ecuador, uh, Lenin Moreno, uh, sees this as sort of a problem he inherited from his predecessor. And she says that Thorn aside, certainly was not happy when WikiLeaks and Assange were publishing uh, documents, you know, embarrassing leaks about Ecuador and about him personally. Um, so I think that he has wanted to kind of get rid of Assange for a while. And he also has wanted to be involved with the IMF for a while. You know, he has a sort of foreign policy and a a stance of engaging with, you know, what I'm going to call the international community, meaning like the U.S., Western countries, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, you know, that sort of Western consensus um, in a way that his predecessor, Rafael Correa, did not have. Like, Correa liked bucking the system, liked being kind of independent, out on his own, uh, asserting his sovereignty, that is why he you know, did not love working with uh, institutions like the IMF. It is also why he granted Assange asylum. Like, he granted Assange asylum because he wanted to stick it to, especially the U.S. and these Western countries that he felt were... trying to control the flow of information and prevent, you know, politically persecuted Assange for exposing what was going on. So in that respect, I see the IMS deal and Assange's situation as being related, not necessarily as a quid pro quo, but just as reflective of the fact that they are tied up in terms of whether you want to be on friendly terms with the U.S. and the international community or not. 
you know, that actually makes sense to me. Um, I think that's probably and, a fair and, I will also say, you know, one, one irony I find is that, uh, you know, Korea was not, uh, not beloved by the international press freedom community and, and by sort of journalists because he was, uh, he believed in curtailing uh, freedom of the press mm-hmm. because he felt that a lot of the journalists in Ecuador belonged to sort of these mainstream, very right-wing uh, publications right. that were propped up by kind of the you know, traditional right-wing capitalist elites mm-hmm. of Ecuador and of South America, and that they would go out of their way to smear and embarrass and invade the privacy of, you know, reformers and left-wing politicians. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, no, you know, we are going to have a strong defamation and invasion of privacy law that says that if you publish this information that is, you know, invading the privacy of politicians, we're not going to let you do that because you're not doing journalism. You're just, you know, smearing politicians for political reasons. Right. And that was something that a lot of journalists objected to. Um, a lot of people in the U.S. objected to. It's like, oh, you're just backing down on freedom of the press. Yeah. And I agree. I was not a fan of that policy in him. <laughs> You find it kind of ironic. It is that ironic. He granted asylum to Assange, yeah. and then in 2016, when WikiLeaks was publishing yeah. all the offensive information from the Clinton campaign, then people were like, "Oh, they're not acting as journalists; they're just behaving politically yeah. and smearing politicians." It's true. It's total irony. The irony does not, ex- not does not escape me. I, we briefly mentioned William Barr, and I wanted to talk to him, talk about him in a, uh, for a second, because this is a guy. I think it, it bears to remember that this is a guy that wanted to change or amend the First Amendment to outlaw flag burning, even though SCOTUS has ruled twice before that that this was uh, absolutely a violation of First Amendment rights. So this is a guy who is already willing to bend the First Amendment. There's no two ways about this. He's um, shown us that's who he is. And I think uh, we should also keep in mind that during his confirmation hearings, when Amy Klobuchar asked him whether or not he was willing to jail journalists, he did not say no. Um, He more or less listed circumstances or instances where he thought it would be a perfectly reasonable thing to do. So this uh, is very chilling, and I think this in combination with what happened this morning should be something that we're all very concerned about. Um, well, and, and, and I would just add that it's not just um, William Bob. Yeah. Uh, the exact same thing happened with uh, Attorney General Sessions. Yeah, fair enough. at his confirmation hearing, he was asked, you know, will you commit not to jail journalists? And he said no. Yeah. yeah, he was like, it depends on the situation. Yeah. Um, and then later he said, you know, we're investigating all of these leak cases. And he was asked, you know, what about the journalists? And again, he would not commit to not telling them. And so William Barr, I think, is just continuing that. It's not so much William Barr personally. It's just the Trump justice yeah. department. Yeah. They do not respect freedom of the press. No, they don't. And they are willing to jail journalists. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, you're correct. So, but this is where we're at. And I, I, I think I just don't understand, I guess, in my mind, I don't understand why people aren't more alarmed by this. There seems to be a sort of complacency that's taken over most Americans where either they hate Trump so much that they'll excuse the treatment of Assange and they don't see why that's a problem, or the opposite is true. They love Trump so much that they think anything authoritarian that he does is perfectly acceptable. I feel like just the extreme divisiveness that we have in our culture when it comes to politics is now sort of meeting on this in this one area that's very dangerous, and neither side seems to realize that. Yeah, well, I mean, I you know, I, I think part of that is just a uh, uh, consequence of Trump and and how polarizing he is. Yeah, and you know, not not polarized in the sense that oh, there are people who have kind of strong opinions for or against, but I, I mean. You know, he is an active threat to so many groups. Yeah. Um, certainly immigrants, uh, Muslims, uh, transgender Americans, yeah. and journalists as well. Uh, yeah, no, I don't disagree. Uh, so let's talk about Chelsea Manning for a second, because she's been recently jailed again for refusing to comply with a subpoena, you know, and now we have this... Um, the indictment is related to her as well this morning. What do you think is going to happen to Chelsea Manning in all of this? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't entirely know mm-hmm. because, you know, she was obviously subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury. She refused to testify. Yeah. And so she was held in contempt and has been jailed basically right. until she testifies. But I don't think her testimony for that, before that grand jury, was related to this specific indictment, because this indictment was uh, filed in 2018. It was only unsealed today, but it was filed last year. That's right, in so the summer. So that suggests that they are, you know, potentially pursuing other charges. Like, there must be some other matter that the grand jury is investigating. Um, As far as the specific uh, behavior that is included in this indictment, uh, it, you know, clearly, I mean, I guess you would say that uh, Chelsea Manning is a an unindicted uh, co-conspirator. You know, it's clear that she was making law at least much not more than Assange. I don't think she will be uh, indicted, though, because I think that that was all settled in 2010 when she was originally convicted and jailed. Mm -hmm. So I don't think she'll be jailed on any of those charges now. Uh, I think, I mean, she's going to remain in jail until she testifies um, or until she's, you know, eventually released. But I don't think she will be charged with any more crimes. Right. I think potentially the grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia is looking, uh, you know, they want to get her testimony because right. they want to charge Assange with other crimes. You know, they want to get more evidence. Um, but I don't think she'll be charged with any more crimes. Okay. 
I hope that's true. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Espionage Act. Uh, you wrote a couple of pieces that were pretty um, evergreen on the Espionage Act. So this was originally signed, I don't know if folks know the history on this, was really originally signed into law in June of 2017 by Woodrow Wilson. And even then there were concerns that the language was far too broad or too vague in regards to uh, activities of whistleblowers and journalists. So walk us through some of the highlights of your uh, articles on the subject. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Espionage Act of 1917, um, you know, dates from World War I, and it was essentially meant to criminalize uh, espionage by especially German spies in the U.S. So essentially, if they would try to go to military institutions and take photographs or steal documents, um, you know, espionage of that sort was still relatively new in uh, World War One on sort of a, a major scale. So the idea was to pass this law that would criminalize it so that if spies were caught, they could be jailed and to discourage people from spying for Germany. Um, as part of the Espionage Act, when it was being debated in Congress, there was originally a provision that would have allowed uh, the president to censor newspapers during a time of war. And uh, Congress objected to that. Uh, they, they said that would violate the First Amendment. So that provision was actually taken out. Um, the president was not given the power to censor the press. But the rest of the act was uh, enacted. And it's relatively big. It basically uh, prohibits the dissemination or the unauthorized dissemination of material relating to the national defense. It doesn't actually say anything about classified information because the idea of a classification system did not exist in uh, 1917 that uh, comes from executive orders, uh, I believe after the Second World War, the modern classification system. So it just said information relating to the national defense that could be used to the injury of the United States. And once it was enacted, it was immediately used to go after people protesting the war, specifically people who spoke out against the draft. And certainly if you encouraged people uh, not to cooperate with the draft, uh, that was seen as a crime. Um, the Supreme Court upheld convictions of people, especially socialists, who encouraged people, you know, not to well, not to cooperate with the draft. But it went even farther. Even just criticizing the war was seen as potentially injurious to the United States because it would hurt morale and would, you know, persuade people not to fight, even if you were not actually telling them, you know, skip the draft, like just, you know, don't comply. Even if you just said, you know, the war is bad, then that was interpreted as, you know, encouraging people not to comply with the draft. And so even people who were just speaking out against the war 
were convicted under the Espionage Act, and the Supreme Court upheld those convictions, including the uh, conviction of Eugene Debs, the socialist presidential candidate. He ran for president while he was in jail. In September of 1915, Gene Debs gave his views of the war, then raging in Europe. I am not a capitalist soldier. I am a proletarian revolutionist. I am opposed to every war but one. I am for that war with heart and soul. And that is the worldwide war of the social revolution. In that war, I am prepared to fight in any way the ruling class may make necessary, even to the barricades. That is where I stand and where I believe the Socialist Party stands or ought to stand on the question of war. In June of 1918, with American troops now fighting in Europe, Debs spoke to a socialist gathering in Canton, Ohio. In this, his most famous speech, he outlined the socialist opposition to the war and gave his unqualified support to the Russian Revolution, which had just taken place under the leadership of Lenin and Trotsky. This was also the speech for which he was sentenced to jail. In the Middle Ages, the feudal lords and barons, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all the battles. The poor, ignorant serfs had been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon each other and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons who held them in contempt. And that is war in a nutshell. It hasn't changed. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. The ruling class has always taught and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. And here, let me emphasize the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war, and they alone make peace. Yours not to reason why, yours but to do or die. This is their model, and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. Two weeks after he gave his Canton, Ohio speech, Gene Debs was arrested and charged with violating the Espionage Act. Two months later, he was tried, found guilty of the charges, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, fortunately, after the war, those convictions were not exactly overturned, but uh, Supreme Court precedent uh, adopted different standards of what counted as first and protected speech. So now, just criticizing the war uh, would not get you arrested. But 
the Espionage Act continued to be used against actual spies throughout the 20th century. And then towards the end of the 20th century, uh, it began to be used against sort of the media, and particularly journalist sources. So that really started in uh, the 70s with the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg leaking the Pentagon Papers to the media. Uh, they wanted to charge him under the Espionage Act. Uh, the only reason that he was not convicted under the Espionage Act is because when he was uh, being prosecuted in court, uh, the Nixon administration was so corrupt, and it came out that Nixon's plumbers had actually broke, they actually broke into the office of his psychiatrist in an attempt to find negative information about him, and they tried to bribe the judge overseeing the case. Uh, and at that point, you know, Ms. Charles was declared, and um, he was not uh, convicted. There was also talk about going after the journalists that he had given the documents to. Uh, grand juries were impaneled to look into the possibility of bringing Espionage Act charges against those journalists. In the end, charges were not brought. Then in the 80s and 90s, you know, once you had a, a growing national security state, there was talk about using the Espionage Act against journalists and their sources. I believe it was in the 1980s that the first person was actually uh, convicted under the Act for giving information to a media outlet. But it was still relatively rare until the beginning of the first century. And then at the tail end of the Bush administration and for the Obama administration, uh, the Department of Justice used the Espionage Act a number of times to go after journalist sources. You know, people who shared information with AP reporters or Fox reporters or Washington Post reporters, New York Times reporters, about, you know, classified government programs that had gone wrong and wasted a ton of money or about what the government learned about, say, North Korea or Iran's nuclear program. And that's information that, like, it is good that they shared that information with reporters and good that the reporters could inform the American people so that they knew what was going on, both with their government and with other countries. But they were prosecuted under the Espionage Act because they had obtained national security information, information that was classified and related to the national defense, and they had shared that information with journalists who, of course, were not authorized to access it. Uh, there was also some concern that the Espionage Act could be used against the journalists themselves because the yeah. journalists also disseminated that information. You know, they published it. That's right. Well, now, the Espionage Act has never been used against a journalist, but it theoretically could be. Yeah. The Obama administration considered it, yeah. uh, but ultimately did not. They did not want to throw journalists in jail. Uh, they knew that, you know, it was not going to be great optics, and it was probably going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. Yeah. And that's you know, also why they declined to prosecute WikiLeaks and Assange. 
Right. Because they were concerned about whether it's possible to use these kind of national security laws against journalists and publishers. The Trump administration, as I said before, I don't think they are concerned about that. So when Trump was elected, I was very concerned that the Trump administration would build on the president of the Obama administration right. in using the Espionage Act aggressively against you know, government employees who leaked information to the press, but also potentially in using the act against the journalists who received that information and then published it. Mm-hmm. So far, that has not happened. So far. It so far. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if it at some point does happen. because I mean, the... people were concerned that it might happen with Assange. Yeah. That when he was you know, when there was a sealed indictment returned against him and we didn't know what it contained, mm-hmm. there was a lot of concern, especially among journalists and press freedom groups, right. that he might be charged under the Espionage Act for publishing classified information, mm-hmm. which would set a very dangerous precedent. And then but it turned out that the government went out of their way to avoid charging him for publishing information. You know, people were believed. It mm-hmm. indicated that the government did not want to set that precedent. They did not want to say that it's illegal to publish classified information. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as we said before, the indictment is concerning for other reasons. Right. Indeed. I, you know, and I also can't help but notice that the entire, you know, the trajectory of how this has been, the ante has been upped also sort of co- corresponds or correlates to the increase of the government becoming more privatized in the sense where they use uh, private security firms, uh, private military industrial type complex organizations. I mean, the Iraq war was, was fought with soldiers that were not, uh, you know, they were private contractors. No, I, so. I, absolutely. I mean, the number of people who have access to information that is technically secret or mm. top secret is huge. Yeah. And that makes it much more likely to leak. The fact yeah. that there is rampant overclassification where things that are not sensitive yeah. and do not need to be classified are classified, where a lot of information that is secret or even top secret is not actually going to damage mm-hmm. national security if it is deleted. Right. But because it was based on, you know, it was derived from information that was secret or top secret, they just keep it top secret. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, no one ever errs on the side of transparency. No, you know, and I think a lot of the reason too is that these are private corporations and they they have a profit motive. So sometimes the things that they want to keep secretive are related to that aspect of who they are, not necessarily the services that they are providing the federal government per se. Right, and you know, and the government also wants to keep things uh, secret that mm-hmm. are not damaging to national security, but would be embarrassing, you know, right. potentially embarrassing to you know the government as a whole in terms of like, you know, funding boondoggles and failed projects, but also something that, you know, you don't want another, you know, sector of the national security state to know about. Yeah. So you have the internal politics as well. And all of it 
leads to further and further classification because there's nothing really pushing back on that. Yeah, exactly. You know, and how much of the um, how much of this is related to the Patriot Act as well? Because you know that was passed under the Bush administration, and I and I remember thinking at that time how deadly the act was for First Amendment freedoms, and it was really concerning to me that it just was passed sweepingly. Like, I mean, what Bernie Sanders, I think, and maybe one or two at Rand Paul were the only ones who were saying, "No, this is a bad idea," but. It had full bipartisan support, and it was sold to the American public based on this idea of fear, fear of terrorists, uh, fear of the unknown, fear of, you know. And here we are, it's like 2019, and I thought that we would have had gotten rid of that by now, but I don't see it happening. Um, what do you think on on that? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there is a, a bipartisan kind of national security state, yeah. Uh, the fact, you know, Bush obviously expanded the national security state and particularly expanded surveillance. Yeah. It's also the case that surveillance became much easier as everything became digitized. Though it's also the case that it became much easier to leak large quantities of information as everything became digitized. And it became easier to trace it which I think is another reason why you see this increase in espionage act prosecutions. The first surveillance, you know, both expanded it, and then Obama did not curtail it. Uh, he just kind of built on the Bush precedent. He didn't close Guantanamo. He did not uh, end warrantless wiretapping or NSA surveillance, intelligence sharing between intelligence agencies like NSA and the CIA and law enforcement agencies like the FBI or the DEA ICE. So I think that the fact that the Obama administration did not end those programs, you know, let alone prosecute Bush appointees who engaged in illegal surveillance and torture, uh, kind of established that this was part of government now. It wasn't a partisan issue. It was just part of the background of government. It was bipartisan. And, you know, you also see that, especially with drone strikes. And all of these issues, these civil liberties issues, you know, when Obama was president, some people were warning about them, but a lot of people, especially a lot of liberals, kind of felt like, well, you know, this what he's doing. Like, he's a constitutional law professor. You know, we have to trust that. Yeah. Right. And it's not like we can just give up these surveillance tools. <laughs> but then you have someone like Trump come in, yeah. and I, I think it's very clear sort of the error yeah. of... I agree. Giving Look, that much power to the executive branch. Yeah, you know. And I, to the government in general. You know, Obama didn't curtail it. He amped the ante and then he handed that toxic football to Trump. One of the things that Obama did that I will never, ever forgive him for is drone bombing an American citizen abroad. That yeah. is such a violation of our constitutional rights. He was an American citizen. He has a right to habeas corpus like this to me was 
so far over the crossing the line. And, and, you know, the, the uh, argument was that he was a terrorist. I'm like, well, then you take him to court and you prove it because that is who we are. And when he did that, I was just, you can tell now I'm getting angry. I was so angry and flabbergasted. Yeah. This was somebody I had supported and he had campaigned on curtailing these things during his campaign. He said, I'm not going to prosecute whistleblowers. The Patriot Act has been bad. Like this was such a 180 from the person that I thought I had elected to office. And it was a stunning betrayal on so many levels. Um, And I think a lot of liberals either ignored it, chose to not pay attention to it, or pretend as if it didn't happen in the name of team sports or something else. I don't know what it was, but it was sort of the moment that I just realized that Obama wasn't the president that I had hoped he would be. Well, despite mounting international criticism against the American drone program, it appears as though the U.S. has picked its next target, and this one is an American citizen. The Associated Press has confirmed with four U.S. officials that the U.S. is now targeting an unnamed American who is believed to be an al-Qaeda facilitator and who is actively planning attacks on American citizens overseas. Officials are now in the process of building a case against the man to prove that a drone strike against him is legal, constitutional, and necessary. The Justice Department will then present the president with a formal review, and the president will have a final say. Now, this newest information comes less than a year after President Obama promised Americans more strict drone regulations in a national defense speech. For the record, I do not believe it would be constitutional for the government to target and kill any U.S. citizen with a drone or with a shotgun without due process. But when a U.S. citizen goes abroad to wage war against America and is actively plotting to kill U.S. citizens, And when neither the United States nor our partners are in a position to capture him before he carries out a plot, his citizenship should no more serve as a shield than a sniper shooting down on an innocent crowd should be protected from a SWAT team. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Obama felt or experienced that, you know, when he was elected and he was the one kind of getting all this information and making these decisions, I think he felt like, well, you know, uh, rather than end it all, he was going to make the decision Mm -hmm. and, you know, weigh the different factors and, you know, oversee the system. And, you know, because he was intelligent and understood concepts of constitutional justice, I think he felt that he could make these decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would be more dangerous and reckless to, you know, just give up the drone program entirely or just stop collecting the surveillance. So right, even if he right. criticized it before, once he was in charge, you know, he trusted himself enough to administer it. Mm. And again, I think that the magnitude of that betrayal really becomes clear when Trump is elected, mm-hmm. because it means that he, instead of, you know, permanently ending these programs, right. he just managed them, you know, fairly well, uh, right. not without controversy, but, you know, 
presumably he did. I mean, the, I the obvious example is, you know, refusing to get uh, involved in Syria, right. uh, despite urging from the sort of foreign policy establishment mm-hmm. and, you know, the military industrial complex. But in general, you know, I think he felt like he knew what he was doing, uh, so things were okay. But again, the magnitude of that arrow comes clear yeah. when Trump is then elected and has all of these levers of power. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it becomes very clear that in trusting the president's judgment rather than in ending these programs and sort of defending civil rights regardless of who is president, you are going to end up giving enormous amounts of power to people who absolutely cannot be trusted to uh, use it. And one thing that I think is kind of interesting is that the, I guess the reaction of a lot of people is not that presidents shouldn't have this kind of power, but that people like Trump shouldn't be allowed to become president. Does seem like if the issue is that you don't want people like Trump to have access to this kind of power, that's right. Maybe no one should have access to that kind of power. I agree with you 100% with what you just said. That's the philosophical outcome of this because democracy is messy. You can't decide who gets to vote because now you're getting into this sort of fascist area. Well, only the only the smart people get to vote. Well, who decides who the smart people are? You know, I mean, it's just a slippery slope. So it's really imperative that we have a system in place that we can trust, that um, sort of checks the things that we're discussing. And, we, you know, I think at one time we had we had those checks, not all of them. There was always issues, obviously. You can go back to World War II and, you know, what we were talking about earlier. But I think a lot of those checks have been slowly chipped away And instead of improving these things, we've worsened them on many levels. And I think um, what concerns me the most, though, is the fact that most Americans seem to be asleep at the wheel. They don't seem to be worried about it. You know, I've talked to a lot of, you know, young 20 year olds about this. And they think that this is just how it is because they grew up with the Patriot Act and like they just don't understand that it wasn't always this way. And I that really concerns me. They don't seem to understand that, no, this isn't how it should be, how it always was. And you have a right to privacy. You have a right, um, you know, your First Amendment rights aren't something that we should chip away at. You should you should fight for that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I absolutely think it's true that, you know, when you've established what something, you know, what, what a society is like, then people who grow up in that society... Uh, don't realize that yeah. it could be different or that it was different in the past. Yeah. Um, but I also think that even people who do know that it was different in the past don't necessarily, uh, you know, know how to fight for those rights right. or feel that it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, or yeah. It's not possible. Well, I think you're right about the not worth it. And that's that's sort of part of the problem with these chilling factors on journalism. I think it relates to that in the sense that 
every time you know you have like a Barrett Brown situation, every time you have something like this happens, it sort of scares off the next guy from touching any sort of a leak because they don't want to end up in jail per se. And that's the intention of the plutonomy or the military industrial complex, et cetera. That's, that's the whole point of the matter. And I think a lot of it has to do with corporate power and privatization. And I don't think, I don't think when we started down that path, uh, you know, really the neoconservatives and the neoliberals are at this, at this juncture where they have pretty much the same set of ideals I don't think that they saw this as necessarily an outcome of all the privatization that they pushed. You know what I'm saying? They didn't really think about corporate power needing to be checked per se. They were looking at just the side that says it's more efficient, which is not entirely true. But, you know, you can look at the arguments that are pretty systemically made in regards to this. And now here we are, you know, and I don't see... It's a mess. I mean, these these private security firms, the military industrial complex firms, all of, they're so intertwined at this point and with our federal government and with our security apparatus. I don't know how you undo the. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I you know the, the problem with sort of the neoliberalization of the national security state is that you are privatizing. Uh, this sort of government authority and, and government power, yeah. uh, which means that it is then becoming subject to private interests. Yeah. Um, you know, Not I public interest. imagine a, a sort of naive libertarian view that is like, well, you know, we don't want the government to have this power, so instead we're <laughs> going to privatize it and That's sort of so devolve naive. it to the yeah, private yeah, yeah. sector. Right. But that does not mean that uh, power no longer exists. It means that power is now Shifted. also controlled by corporations. That's right. Which is not necessarily an improvement. And I don't understand why they don't see that. If there's a profit motive, you know, like Blackwater, you can go down the list of some of the bigger cases of this. But they're not they're not interested in, in the public goods or, or in public interest or serving the things that a government's supposed to serve. I understand why you would want a smaller government for those reasons, but not carte blanche handing over the security of that to the private sector. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the problem you know is what that I'm saying? when you say smaller government, you need to shrink sort of the governmental power. Yeah. It doesn't do any good if you don't shrink, shrink it and hand it the over. government, <laughs> exactly. but you have the same power and you just right. give it. But, you know, yeah. That's so, right. I, I, again, I, I think that's an issue where when people say, you know, we want smaller government, uh, mm -hmm. you need to be clear that you don't just want smaller sort of public control of right. this power. You want to curtail the small, power. You, know, you want less power. Right, right. Yeah. So that's ex that is the, the more elegant way to, to, to point out what I was getting at, because that's exactly what it is. They've taken this increased power over your private life and handed it to a private corporation. And that hasn't served anybody. It's made it worse. And I don't yeah. uh, you know what I'm saying? So so the protection, you know, I don't think our founding fathers have this in mind. This is not what they were after when they set up our uh, our First Amendment. And. It's just, but at this point, the web is so intertwined. It's so deeply ingrained. And, you know, you can go back to Eisenhower and his speech on the military industrial complex, complex all those years ago. And, you know, the warnings he gave, it was very prescient. Here we are. And I don't, you know, we're what, seven permanent wars now? 
Yeah. We're, now we're talking about regime change in Venezuela and none of these things. And th- what slays me is none of this has to do with the idea of humanitarian aid. It's always about corporate interests. It's about the resources, about money. It's the, you know, we're not providing humanitarian aid to Venezuela. We're, we want their oil. We weren't after, like, I mean, you can go back, you know, to when the CIA, you know, instituted regime change in Iran because they were going to privatize oil. This isn't anything new. Yet America, guys, just I'm very frustrated because it just escalates. It doesn't get better. And and I think um, what happened this morning is par and parcel to the problem in the sense that anybody that tries to expose this stuff gets attacked by the same governments. And it's not just the United States. It's Great Britain. You know, it's the plutonomy crosses national lines the global elite in the sense that they're all interested in making money they're multinational corporations wanting to protect their interests they have a shared interest in 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 all of these things and i uh, <laughs> i don't know how you fix it at this point i want to make sure that if folks want to follow you on twitter they have your twitter handle uh so what's your your twitter handle is your name i believe right yeah it's at Peter Stern, so that's at P E P E R S T E R N E. And do you have any new uh, pieces coming out that you want to plug? So I will have uh, a piece. I think there's uh, some already about um, the Assange uh, indictment, okay. which will be published on uh, the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker. And and before before uh, we go. I also, you know, wanted to talk about what happened to you. Oh. Talking about freedom of the press. <laughs> right. That, that's how we initially got connected. That's right. A volunteer for um, one of the elected officials. I'm not sure if, I think she was Wendy Carrillo's volunteer, but I'm not entirely uh, 100% sure. Uh, grabbed, the, grabbed the phone that I was broadcasting, the iPhone, and started walking down the street, went to get it from her, and she was flailing her arms around trying to keep it from me instead of returning it. And she ended up cracking um, cracking the phone screen, and then she hit me, which is just wild. I always thought I would, you know, Peter, I always thought I would get hit by a Nazi at one of these things, not a not somebody at a democratic function. <laughs> just party function, it's just weird. And, you know, interestingly enough, I was looking at some of the other episodes that uh, are on the the freedom tracker. And there's some really chilling stories. I was uh, interested in the gentleman that's in, I think, was it Arizona? Uh, what, what, what happened to him? I, I, oh, I'll, okay. I'll so he was today, jailed but... for uh, protecting his source. So, yeah. yeah. So this is the kind of stuff that's been going on in the United States. And, you know, we, we look at Violence against journalism's ha- journalists has been increasing abroad exponentially. There's no two ways about it. But I don't think people are truly aware of the environment here in the United States. Trump has def- definitely upped the ante on this with um, his constant, you know, fake news, fake news. Journalists can't be trusted rhetoric. And I think people are just angry in general. I think they're angry about where they're at as far as income inequality and some other things. But I think they're also very angry about not feeling like they're being heard by their politicians. And I think 2016 was just a giant um, sort of wake up call for a lot of voters in the country. And I don't know, it's um, 
crazy situation. And you're still going to continue doing freelance journalism with them, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, I, I think that one thing that is sort of, I don't want to say positive about, about 2016, but I, I do think that Trump has brought attention to issues that were already uh, kind of under the surface right. in the U.S., particularly with respect to press freedom. So, you yeah. know, a lot of what we cover on the U.S. press freedom tracker is, you know, related to Trump, especially when you're talking about, like, showing statements, yeah. when he's, you know, calling reporters uh, treasonous. But a lot of things are also just kind of the continuation of, of what was happening previously with journalists being arrested uh, or physically attacked at protests, right. you know, courts ordering journalists to reveal their confidential sources. Right. And that was something that wasn't really being talked about so much before Trump came on the scene. Mm. And so I think that True. now people are paying a lot more attention and they're realizing, you know, just how concerning some of the things that happen in the U.S. really are. Yeah, no, you're right. You know, and I think another... Uh point of issue is what happened in Sacramento. I had Amar Shurgel on uh, my podcast a couple weeks ago, and he does pro bono work um, for Black Lives Matters um, up in Sacramento, and they were arresting all kinds of journalists during the Stefan Clark protests. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't just one or two. It was, it was seven or eight of them that got you know caught up in all of those arrests. It was um, crazy. And they knew they were journalists. And and, and that's uh, that, that's sort of a, a trend that we've seen a lot over the past few years. I mean, they did it extensively uh, in in 2014 in Ferguson. They did it even earlier uh, with Occupy, where increasingly the police sort of adopted this almost counterinsurgency yeah. um, approach toward protests. Where yeah. it's not really about you know, just keeping people safe and, like, you know, walking in a straight line. Um, right. It's like right. they go out there with military gear That's right. and sort of fight the protesters mm -hmm. where, you know, they want to arrest people who are potentially breaking the law. It's, it's a very sort of hostile uh, attitude and a very aggressive treatment of protesters and the journalists who are covering them. No, it is chilling. And, uh, yeah, the militarized police are not helping in the situation. And I think a lot of the times they have no problem violating First Amendment rights, even though they know they're doing it. Like, uh, you know, Amar had mentioned to me that they had intentionally arrest journalists. Like, this was not a mistake. So it makes you wonder. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they, they, they don't care. You know, yeah. if you say you're a journalist, it's like, well, their job is to arrest people who are standing in the street. Yeah. Um, you know, if you are at this corner, they say disperse, and if you don't, they arrest you. And, you know, a lot of the time they heard people, right. you know, with different police lines sort of to one area, and kind of keep them confined right. and then order them to disperse. Obviously, yeah. they can't. And then it's like, all right, you know, you're under arrest. Yeah. Um, and you, and you just see these mass arrests 
yeah. of protesters and journalists, and often uh, legal observers actually arrested uh, an LG observer yeah. who was a judge. Wow. Yeah. Like, was, a, a, you bad. know, magistrate judge. Um, because they just, you know, they don't make distinctions. No. They feel like it's not their problem. Their job is arrest everyone on the street. Yeah. No, uh, Sacramento was a bad, bad deal. Uh, we saw a lot of violations yeah, there. And, and it was really interesting for me seeing all the kind of Sacramento journalists tweeting about that. Yeah. Um, it was interesting for me because I'm like, you know, I, I guess that's new to Sacramento, but it, I've been seeing that Elsewhere. increasingly in different cities. Yeah. You know, you see it happen in Washington, D.C. You mm-hmm. see it happen in New York. You see it happen in Portland. That's you true. obviously see it happen in St. Louis and Ferguson. Yeah. I mean, St. Louis is probably the worst. Yeah. But it's just sort of this trend. And I was, I was very encouraged by the response of the sort of the Sacramento, uh, you know, the mayor and, and the politicians, uh, you know, saying, you know, this is not acceptable. We're not going to do this. Right. Um, but I hope that they, you know, encourage the police to stop. And what a lot of, you know, uh, departments do when they get caught doing this is uh, institute kind of regular First Amendment training, mm. you know, reminding mm-hmm. officers that you're not supposed to arrest journalists. Right. And, you know, it sounds absurd, like shouldn't they know that? But I think what makes the difference is if you sort of put, you know, if you spend your political capital on it. So right. if you have the mayor sort of telling the police commissioner, you know, it's very embarrassing. It looks very bad when right. your officers arrest journalists, you know, stop it. Yeah. And then the police commissioner kind of instructs, you know, top police officials, you know, we can't do this anymore. And that kind of gets filtered down to the people who are making the decisions mm-hmm. on the scene where, you know, if you are like a sergeant and you know that if you order an officer to go arrest a journalist, you are not going to get promoted. Like, it's going to look bad. That is what is going to change people's mindsets. Yeah. Like, you know, you just have to let the police know that, like, this is not acceptable. Right. It's really, it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. I agree. And, you know, I think um, Sacramento PD has had serious cultural issues, as has the LAPD. Let's, uh, let's be honest about that. I think yeah. um, I think it's an interesting development for that reason that Larry Kasner was uh, elected DA in Philadelphia. I think that's the sort of thing maybe that needs to happen. Maybe you end up getting... Instead of having prosecutors across the board that are tough on crime, so to speak, you elect folks that are much more interested in preserving First Amendment and civil rights that come at yeah. this from a sort of different point of view. I think. Um, well, and, and I think you, you also want DAs who are going to aggressively go after right. uh, police officers who violate the law. Exactly. Well, you know. But yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely there's, there's a crop of you know increasingly progressive. Uh, DAs who are being elected, and it's a it's a difficult balancing act, you know, to kind of want to reform the office, but also be the person. Uh, 
prosecuting people. You know, we have a situation, and um, I guess we're going to go just have a little bit longer a podcast today. Uh, one of the original questions that I had for you was in regards to this, because we have a situation here in California currently where Becerra is um, threatening to prosecute two journalists from uh, Berkeley that got their hands on a list um, and they got it through a Freedom of Information Act or uh, might have been the Public Records Act. I'm not sure. One of the two requests. They got a list of police officers that have been convicted of crimes in the state of California. And Becerra is trying to go after them and doesn't want them to publish this information or use it as a source work for any stories. And this is something that's going on this month. Um, I know that uh, Freedom of the Press Foundation had a small piece on this. Um, on uh, Maybe the press track did too, I'm not sure. But this is an ongoing battle and people view California constantly as being the... Um, you know, the more liberal state in the country, but we have a lot of problems here in this area. And I don't know um, that it gets really talked about so much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I mean, what, what, you know, uh, the attorney general is doing in California is, I mean, horrible. Yeah, um, it is horrible. It, it's the kind of thing that, you know, you, you do see occasionally uh, often, you know, judges will try to, uh, order journalists not to publish information that they've obtained legally. Mm-hmm. You know, going all the way back to what we were talking about uh, at the beginning of the podcast, yeah, um, where we were talking about, uh, you know, when you obtain information legally or illegally, right. um, this is an instance in which the journalists very clearly obtained the information legally. Yeah. I mean, they got it from a Freedom of Information Act request. Yeah. The government cannot give you information and then be like, <laughs> no, I want to take it back. Oops. Like once you exactly. publicize it, it's out there. Right. So the idea that Becerra uh, believes that he can prosecute journalists yeah. for publishing information that, that the given. government yeah. released. The government released it. I mean, that's, there's no two ways about it. It is absurd. Um, and he's and saying it was I a mean, mistake I cannot now. imagine. Like, yeah, you know, if he tries to do that, um, no court will uphold it. I mean, it's, yeah. there is very, very clear precedent that you cannot prevent journalists from publishing information that has already been released. At least not in the U.S. I agree. You can do it in other countries. Um, you can do it in the UK, you can do it in Australia. They have uh, very different press freedom uh, laws that allow courts to say, you know, you cannot publish certain information because it's too sensitive mm-hmm. or because it might influence an ongoing criminal case. Mm-hmm. But in the US, that's not the case. That's not the case. Uh, yeah. If you get information, you can publish it. Right. And up to now, they haven't done this. They still have the list. And, you know, I, you know, and clearly there's a public interest um, aspect to this because we do have corrupt police officers uh, committing murders and all kinds of heinous things. And why shouldn't the public be aware of that? These are the folks that are supposed to be, uh, you know, 
protecting us from criminals, but if they are criminals themselves, there's a public interest aspect to this. And you're right, they can't turn around and say, oops, we didn't mean to give you that information, because that's the line that Becerra is using. And he is absolutely threatening them. If you read the documents that were sent to these two journalists, he's absolutely threatening them with jail time. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a problem we have here. Um, Anyway, something to keep our eyes on. It's a developing story. We um, don't have any outcomes on this yet. Um, So this just uh, kind of escalated at the beginning of the month. And, of course, nobody's talking about it, Peter. That's what kills me. I don't see this. This is a very serious situation that's not really getting discussed by any of the mainstream outlets. Yeah, it's certainly uh, surprising. But, you know... I mean, the other thing is just there's so much news there's so, all the time. This is true. This is how true. can you know? How can you keep up with it? I mean, this today Assange was uh, yeah. indicted. Mm-hmm. I think Avenatti was indicted yeah, he was again. As well. Yeah, he was again. Um, and well. then the former Obama administration yes, also, that's right. was I indicted see. for working with Ukraine. Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how you keep up with this. You can't. We just start drinking. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, but it's certainly something that, you know, we, well, I mean, the Press Freedom Tracker will, will look after. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a journalist and a press freedom advocate, it's something mm-hmm. that I'm going to be following closely. Yeah, you know, it's my, it's my sort of wheelhouse. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it's impossible to keep up with all the news. Yeah, in a lot of it. every, you know, every beat 